Listener Production. Hi, I'm journalist and producer Chris Walker, and this is season two of my podcast, Brains Trust. What you're about to hear is some of Australia's most interesting, funny and complex people having what I am grandiosely calling a tapestry of conversation. I hope their reactions and responses to the reality of life in 2021 help you rethink, reassess and even reimagine your own year. The Brains Trustees this season include... G'day, my name's Tommy Little. I'm Abby Chatfield. I'm Charlie Pickering. I am Samantha Armitage. I am Rob Reed. You've got Tony Armstrong here. My name's Jamila and I write things in books and on the internet and I say a lot of stuff that sometimes people like and sometimes people don't. (laughs) Together, they are the ultimate dinner party conversation and we've saved you a seat at the table as we discuss the events, news and circumstances of our world from different perspectives. That's a really tricky question. That's an interesting question. That is a really complex question. Well, hang on, let me think about how I felt about that. Today's episode is all about faith. Faith is a big word. Not literally, of course, it's just five letters. But it has big meaning. You can have faith in a god, faith in the rule of law, faith in a football team and faith in another human being. Definitionally, faith really is just a strong conviction or belief. There actually may not be anything more important than our beliefs. They dictate how we behave in our life. Our ability to negotiate each other's beliefs and indeed persuade each other through conversation is really our only defence against a descent into violence. This year, we had many examples and reminders of where we have failed to find common ground. Afghanistan, the Gaza, the White House insurrection, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, violent protests in Australia. We will talk about the full spectrum of belief, religious, personal, political, and where they collide. But let's start with the most obvious question, with the least obvious answer. Is there a God? Jamila Rizvi doesn't think so. I just never have. I, my parents uh, were both raised religious. My mum was raised Catholic and my dad was raised Muslim, but neither are religious. So religion was always sort of around us as kids, but we were never taught it as truth. And I think in my teenage years, I would have really liked to believe in a higher power. I would have liked to believe there was something that happened after you died, but my logical brain just said that there wasn't and still does. Why would you have liked to? I think it would have been comforting. (laughs) I think it's much more comforting than what I think happens, which is kind of nothingness. Worm food. Yeah. um, I still suspect that's why people came up with religion in the first place, right? I I sat my little kid down about two years ago when he asked what what happens when you die. I really wanted to lie. (laughs) I could see why it was appealing to say you go to a beautiful place and this happens and everyone's there. And saying, I don't know, mate, nobody knows, mm. that's not comforting. I don't know. I mean, it, that seems to be like the orthodoxy about what people should say to kids about religion. But I find the other one kind of scary as well, like the idea that we're being watched and judged and assessed and and also the idea that if it is just one life, it kind of makes it all the more precious. Yeah, he was really good about it, actually. He said... We talked about what lots of different people believe and he said, what do you believe? And I said, well, I don't know, but I I expect it will be the same as before I was born. Mm. And he said, well, I have been not born, so I will be good at it. <laughs> Which was kind of morbid but also good. 
You know, glad he feels confident. It's such a healthy sense of self-esteem that he was good at being not born. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think I'm um, I'm someone who is very who used to be very scared of death. But in the last few years after becoming seriously ill, I have become scared of dying young. Not so bothered by dying. I just don't want to die early. Charlie Pickering has dabbled in several of the big monotheistic religions and had a stint as an atheist as a young adult. Now a practising Jew, he remains cautious about the blindness of some religious faith but sees value and even benefit in the mere contemplation of a higher power. I would say that I'm nominally religious. I'm more culturally Jewish than um, religiously Jewish. And it's really interesting. I, I, I would say that that is one of the things it took me time to understand getting to know my wife and getting to know Judaism is I grew up, my, both of my parents were atheist. I adopted Church of England when I moved to Brighton Grammar and, and I got quite involved. I was like an altar boy and I got, I got baptised and confirmed in high school. But I won't speak for other religions or denominations, but to me, Church of England felt like it was compartmentalised. There was your life and culturally I was Australian and I went for Essendon and I liked cricket. And then religion was a separate thing to that. Mm-hmm. Whereas Judaism is, is my first understanding of the, the absolute enmeshment of culture and religion. And it's, it's incredibly old, but all of the religious things have very prescriptive cultural things that go with it. Passover tells the story of Moses leading the, Jews out of slavery in in Egypt to what would have been a very tedious 40 years in the desert. That is a long time in the desert, isn't it? Man, that's a long... It's almost like it maybe wasn't that long. Yeah, yeah, possibly. But either way, you're going to be complaining on your Kentucky tour when it's 40 years (laughs) years in the desert. Imagine the beer. (laughs) (laughs) The the beer at the end of that. And and seriously, you'd you'd really be doubting Moses. You'd really, <laughs> That's right, yeah. Like, come on, mate. We've been doing this for twenty eight years. Ask directions. <laughs> um, but it's the what you do with that is you you have a Pesach dinner and you follow a script called the Haggadah and you read it. It's the same every year. There's songs you sing every year at the dinner table and you eat certain things to symbolise certain parts of that story. And also in Judaism, the most important thing you can do as a Jew and it's like the thing if you only did this you would be Jewish and that's Shabbat dinner on a Friday night and you and you have you, you break bread you drink wine you light candles mm. actually in reverse order you light candles drink wine break mm. bread I've done it it's great yeah and it's every Friday night and it brings family closer together and that is if you do that you're you're a good Jew there aren't those things in Church of England in my experience like you would do communion but that was very much you would do that at church which is also bread and wine Clearly came from the same place, you know. It came from a Passover dinner, but it um, it's like no, we we control that within the, you know, like that's a that's a sacrament. We do it in the official space. So what I, what I've come to understand is that religion and culture blend more in depending on your approach to religion. To convert to Judaism, I had to do what is called a bet din, where three rabbis basically quiz you on what you've learned about being a Jew and how you're going to be a Jew. And they asked me what my understanding of God was. And, and I, I still believe the same today, like that the, the definition of Israel, the, the literal translation of Israel is to struggle with God. And I think it's perfectly reasonable that you could spend your whole life struggling with the idea of God. 
because no one knows. There's no proof either way. Chances are there's not. But the faith that there is, that can be a very helpful thing as well. I'm not really putting my faith, like I'm not driven by faith in that regard. I'm I'm not, I don't, the promise of an afterlife or or the the chance that God exists doesn't determine how I behave on earth. Mm. But the idea of a potential that a God exists, I think is actually a useful thought to have around sometimes. It's actually an interesting thing to wrestle with and, you know, ask yourself if the way we conduct ourselves would please him well, or her. It. You know, it you, could just be an energy. It's funny. One, one of the best parts of Judaism that I would say that I, that I really ascribe to is the idea of tikkun olam, which is repairing the world. And there's, there's sort of an idea that it's almost like the, the earth is a shattered glass vase and we should all be working to put it back together again. And the way that manifests is you should be doing little things to make the world better. And, and I, I think we should. But you don't really need the religion to do that. That's right. That's right. But sometimes it's only religion that puts that stuff on the table. For Sam Armitage, she falls into a quite large category of Aussies, the lapsed Catholic. I was raised Catholic um, and I went to Catholic boarding school and I would say, and Bedad's a product, what is he, Church of England, I don't even know what he is. But um, so we weren't an overly religious family, but mum was a Catholic, so that's how we were raised, we were schooled that way. Um, so I, I would, I'm not a religious person. I mean, I barely go to, you know, Christmas mass these days, but mm. I certainly am a spiritual person. I do believe you go somewhere when you die because I'd like to think that that happens. Where do, where, do, where do you think we go? <laughs> well, I don't know where. Dear Chris, <laughs> now you're asking I mean, wanna, me the big questions. I want to know where we're going. I don't know. I think you go somewhere because I've just lost my mum and I feel like you, you she's there somewhere, you know. You, um, you want to see I have, her again. I have, well, no, not see her again, but I feel like you, you're there, your, your spirit is there somewhere, you know. I, 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 I just don't think it, I would hate to think that that's just the end of it. And then I have days where I feel like maybe I'm a Hindu, you know. (laughs) I kill a spider and I think, oh, God, that spider had a life. And what if I come back and my next life is a spider? So I've got all these mixed, mixed religions going on. The equation of faith changes when proof is available. Take the vaccine, for example. Given the evidence available, the leap of faith required to appreciate that a vaccine is safe is a very, very small jump. But American tech investor and author Rob Reed believes we need to have compassion for those that can't get there. I think the first thing that's important is to try to meet them where they are and not to insult them, you know? That's hard, though. (laughs) It's hard. It is hard. But to, you know, to confront them with as much, as many facts and data as possible and to do it in a patient manner. And, um, you know, and also, gosh, for, for government to be less inept, I'm not exactly sure what happened with AstraZeneca down there, but we had a similar issue here with Johnson & Johnson. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was also a clotting issue. And as, as far as we can tell, one person out of the 8 million people who had, been, who had gotten that vaccine had died of this clotting issue. And it's not entirely certain that they might not have had a clotting issue anyway, right? Um, you in, you right. vaccinate 8 million people and a certain percentage of them are going to drop dead for reasons that have nothing to do with the vaccine within, you know, X days of getting the vaccine, right? But if it's one, one fatality out of 8 yeah. million people uh, was what we were looking at. And the federal government um, paused administration 
of the J&J vaccine for something trivial, like 12 days or something like that. So they could scratch their heads and, and look at this one in 8 million statistic. That had, uh, you know, that was, that was insane in my view. That was insane government irresponsibility because what it did was it gave a roaring signal to anybody who was inclined to be skeptical about vaccines, sitting on the fence, whatever, a roaring signal that, hey, these things aren't necessarily safe. For a 12-day delay, I mean, I'm sure everybody inside the FDA who was behind that decision felt extravagantly high conviction that that vaccine pause was going to be unpaused with incredible speed. So why in the world Mm. do that? But the other thing is, you know, Republican politicians here, um, many of them, not all, but many of them have been stridently urging people not to get vaccinated. And these are in some cases people who have slunk off and gotten vaccinated themselves, but they believe that their careers can be augmented or other interests of theirs can be served by, you know, raising their fists and saying, don't get vaccinated. Um, Particularly in recent weeks as Delta has flourished more, um, we're seeing more and more Republican politicians reverse that position, but that can be very, very, very influential. Um, And again, anybody with a big megaphone has an unbelievable responsibility to educate themselves, you know, not take my or your word for it, but, you know, dig into this data and give advice that is based on the the science and the numbers as we know them. Obviously, your patience is admirable and, and, you know, there's no disputing that's the only way to do it. But sometimes people are dumb. Like, we had this situation where we had a a demonstration and there was people holding up placards like, um, the blood of Christ is my vaccine, which is presumably a protest against the vaccine. I mean, I don't know any other way to describe that other than dumb. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I was raised in the church. I've read the New Testament very carefully many times. I'm quite convinced that there was no passage in anywhere in the Bible about vaccines. Um, so, you know, when people start making statements like that, that Jesus doesn't want you to get vaccinated or Jesus thinks this or Jesus, I mean, there's, you're right. It's so untethered from the actual sacred texts of the religion that there is no response. Someone who has no idea what's in those sacred texts is Tommy Little. I got to sit out of RE in um, primary school, me and Thomas Leong. Uh, we got to sit out and um, so we just hung out in, in the playground and stuff while all the other kids had to do. Why were you allowed to do that? Because mum said she didn't want me to do it. My mum also wrote the school um, a, a note um, saying that there'd be no homework for me in primary school. She said she doesn't believe in homework. And home- it's mum. Yeah, she's the best. She says she doesn't believe for homework for primary school kids. She'll be kids. So uh, she wrote a note <laughs> to let you, to get you out of it. She was so against religion mm-hmm. that she didn't want you doing RA. Yeah, she didn't want me doing RA. No. I realise now with the homework thing, actually, probably would have been good for me to do some homework and maybe I would have done better, but it was great at the time. In Australia, belief in a political camp now seems to come with almost religious zeal. Identifying as right or left can be a source of pride and or a source of embarrassment. Notwithstanding, it's certainly not something to ask someone about at the dinner table. So I asked Sam Armitage about it on this podcast. Well, look, I was raised in the country by a farmer father and a fairly conservative household, so go figure. And I think you can see um, through my work, you know, that I was fairly, fairly um, conservative. And But I like to think as, as I become older, I'm sort of, I would like to think sensible centre 
I would like to think sensible. I, I liked what I did through my work on Sunrise that I used to call people out, whether they were, you know, I, I did at one point get in trouble for calling out Labor leaders in <laughs> Victoria and Queensland during the pandemic and I was like, but I call out Gladys as well. Like I'll I'll call out any politician. You know, I'd obviously often have arguments with Barnaby Joyce on on television and Joel Fitzgibbon. You know, I, I really um Barnaby's fun to argue with. Yeah, well, yeah, yes and no, you can go down rabbit holes there and not come out of it. But um I like good discussion. I like you know, through what I'm doing on my podcast, it's I like right and left. I like um I, I definitely like listening to people that I don't necessarily agree with and, and trying to understand um why they think the way they think, unless they're really, really misinformed. <laughs> So with the right and left thing, I think this fits in also to another thing that you've written about, but do you feel like we've lost our sense of humour? Oh, God, yeah. And and it's well, I think it's more than anything, it's become so polarised. You're either right or you're left and whatever you are, the other side is completely wrong. And um, that's that's that leads into that toxic, you know, looking for people to, to trip up, you know, which is where these stories blow up once a week and it becomes all-consuming and, whoever's in the headlights, Barnaby, let's say, and then they move on to the next person because someone on the other side does something wrong and then they, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's I don't know how it became so polarised. You know, it sort of used to be. I remember when I was a young journo, I, the journos I really admired, like David Spears, for instance, I <laughs> could not have told you who he voted for. And I worked with that guy in a bureau that was about three metres by three metres um, because he was so unbiased and so clever. Mm. And now we've moved into this era where every journo is basically just pushing their whatever political party they vote for and their parents probably vote for, you know, voted for, and it's um, sort of taken a bit of the fun out of it. Two people who are still having fun yelling at the TV about politics are Abby Chatfield and her mum. Now when I go back to Brisbane, if mum and I will watch the news together, we'll, I've noticed... And obviously I, I'd noticed this before, but I think as an adult and having now the job that I have and understanding why I'm the way that I am, because obviously I get asked in most interviews, like, why are you like this? Like, what, why are you the way you are? Why and are you? <laughs> what's going on here? Abby, why are and, you, Abby? Um, <laughs> what's happened? Um, but mum will, mum will, you know, like yell things out of the TV not in like a crazed way, mm. but in like, a, oh God, look at this racist idiot, you know, something like that. Mm. Or, you know, oh, what a sexist pick. And I think that, yeah, mum's mum's approach and my whole family's approach, we have tense debates at um, Christmas and and Easter's and everything. Uh, just about Jesus it, or? <laughs> just, just Jesus-themed debates. That's what we're <laughs> just, allowed. It seems that whenever Jesus, something happens to Jesus, we have a fight. Jesus... <laughs> Jesus is a, is a is a trigger point in our family actually. Where um, I think it's just my how my family is more so because my family are very um, educated and very um, loud, so that ends up in a lot of heated debates about political issues. And we're all kind of on the same. We're in the same. We're all quite left, but obviously yep. the boomers of the family are less left than. Yeah. Gen Z, right? So we'll have debates about things that it isn't like we're we're debating whether or not um, you know Trump should be president. We're, in fact, we'll just yell over each other about why he shouldn't be and our reasons why he shouldn't be. I've had to retreat from having political conversations with my friends and and family, partly because Carrie, my partner, she was like, you know, you're just too full on when you're having debates. I think the 
the most enjoyable part of life is debating and disagreeing. <laughs> I think it is the most fun that I can have. Yeah, I, I really miss it. It is so fun. Yes. So I'm interested in the debates though. So let's say, for example, let me put something to you. So like the idea that Scott Morrison, for example, is guided in his decision-making by his Pentecostal religion. Yeah, not a vibe for our family. So our family actually is really where I guess we're, we are like, you know, in the sense that you know, white Australians are generally Christian. Like we have Christmas and it, as Jesus is our, is our Lord and Saviour, you know, but we're, we're, we're pretty much atheist. So that topic would be, honestly, us all sitting around going, what a fucking dickhead. What a dickhead. Uh, and, then ex- and then kind of agreeing as to why he's a dickhead. And then someone might say something about the vaccine rollout, right? And yep. then my uncle might say, yeah, he's a dickhead, but did you know, because he's a dentist, he'd be like, and then he'd bring in some sort of fact that I can't argue about Some the sort of teeth why. related. <laughs> he'd be like, you know the teeth? And I'd be like, I know about teeth. I've heard about them. Um, and so it would all, it, do you know what I mean? It, it, it'd be, it, we'd all be in the same ballpark, but yep. we'd be arguing like, kind of really semantics. I, like, I'd be like, the reason why he didn't get the vaccines is because of that, that, And they'd be like, no, it's because of this. So it's, uh, we're all, it's, I think that's kind of fostered my healthy love of debate and disagreeing. But we'll even have debates about things like last Christmas, there was a huge fight about whether nice is a compliment, which I think it isn't. I think it's an insult. I guess it depends how you deploy it. Well, I, this, my thing was someone's, someone's boyfriend, like we'd, we'd met someone's boyfriend or something like in the family and my auntie said oh he's nice and I was like so he's boring and she was like no he's nice and I was like you don't say someone's nice if you meet Mm. them if you meet someone's partner and so if my friends met my boyfriend and they said he's nice I would dump him say yeah Mm. gone that was one of the biggest debates I've ever had there was screaming and it was all like the younger kids like all my cousins who are younger than me and then my uncle and mum like at the dinner table pointing fingers it was fun See, enjoyable. Disagreements are enjoyable. I love them. Preaching to the converted. (laughs) But how much can you say about what you really think when you talk out loud for a living? Tommy Little. People talk so much about what you can and can't say and nobody's saying anything anyway. So, like, go out and and do your thing and if you get told by the consensus that that that's too uh, off colour, then Mm. you won't be able to do your thing anymore. But I feel like so much of the of the space of media is taken up now by can you say this and can't you say this, that it's all this shelf space that could be taken up by actually saying things. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I feel like we spend the whole episode going, can you swear or can't you swear? Mm. And Just try it out and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, say shit once. Yeah. See how it goes. And then if you say it twice and they go, oh, that's enough, you work out, hey, you can say shit once. But if you say it twice, you might get told off. I think you can get away with more than ever. Like the fact that you used to not be able to swear on TV and stuff. Mm. I understand that um, racism and homophobia is more frowned upon than mm. ever, but I, I would argue that potentially that's, that's a yeah, good thing. That's a win. <laughs> that's a win. But if you look at someone like Jim Jeffries, yeah. he's, you know, one of the biggest comedians in the world, yeah. saying absolutely wild things. Yeah. Available on the biggest streaming platform to anyone to watch at the click of a button. In your stand-up, mm-hmm. you often do say quite blue, colourful, use blue, colourful language, and and push the boundaries of what you can and can't say. I don't even. I don't think it's in, in your case. I don't think you're purposely doing it for that reason. But you must have thought about it. Of what you can and can't say. Yeah. 
And you're often being told, I know for a fact, you're often being told <laughs> at 6.30 on weeknights when you're in the project that you can't, can't taste it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the beauty about live is you often get told after the fact that you shouldn't have <laughs> yeah, said you something. You can say sorry after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, I don't know. My my attitude with stand-up is I love the fact, to me, stand-up should feel like the doors are closed, we're in the dark. But it's not, and it's is a, it? And it's a little bit, it's a little bit naughty. It is, but I mean, it's not. I mean, look at Kramer. Yeah, sure. Sure. I think it's just what you find funny. I mean, I'm I'm so immature that a lot of the time, I mean, my current stand-up show has a 10-minute story about getting pissed on in the bedroom. And... I just find that story. Who pissed on you? Oh, have you not seen the show? Did you not come and see the show? I didn't. I didn't come and see this. Like, hey, why didn't you come I, and see? You didn't it? invite me. What do you mean, Carrie came? Yeah. Well, I, we've got three kids. Bring them. <laughs> I mean, I'll bring Ollie. But <laughs> I don't know if Evie's ready for being pissed on. But I, but I think um, it's just what you find funny. Like, and that's what I find funny. And I mean, my mum, I would say, if someone said to my mum in the street, uh, do you want to watch a comedian here say a 10-minute story about getting urinated on in the bedroom? My mum would say no every single time. Mm. My mum came and saw the show and afterwards she said, uh, darling, very funny show. Uh, the pissing on stuff was hilarious. And so I think you can get away with what you can get away with. But Okay, but let's put stand-up to one side. Mm-hmm. I agree that's kind of like, it's like barley when you're a, you know, you're a kid. You know, it's, you're, it's, an, it's you're sort of immune to the rest of societal norms. Yeah, but you're not just on. You're not just doing stand up. You live in a world where you have to interact with people, and you are on TV. You're on radio. Mm. Do you ever worry about getting cancelled? Uh, yeah, of course. And I also worry about. I've been wrong about everything in my life. Like when the when the internet started. I remember when the internet started. Didn't think it was going to be a big deal? I, no. I said, no, this isn't going to stick around. Uh, when COVID started, I literally thought we could shut ourselves in our houses for two weeks mm. and that was over for the world. And I was like, fine, guys, it'll be done. And so I'm very hesitant to have a hardline view on anything. Tell <laughs> <laughs> like you had two hardline views <laughs> and didn't learn your lesson. <laughs> but I'm also, I picture, even when you say you're scared of getting cancelled, I picture this being the tape that then gets played. Like, I'm, I'm scared to go, oh, look, you're fine to work right up to a point, right up to the line. You've got to toe the line, but try not to go over it. And I pictured this then be the leading in sentence for then they cut to the vision of me saying something really heinous on here. <laughs> but the headlines are just, he did not see this coming. <laughs> Charlie Pickering thinks we've lost sight of the nuance when it comes to cancel culture. In a lot of ways, cancel culture is a label that has been given to political correctness, which was an enemy of um, one side of politics in the 90s. And so now it's cancel culture is an enemy of one side of politics. And my genuine feeling is that what that side of politics didn't like about political correctness and doesn't like about cancel culture, just using their term, is it's people who've not had a seat at the table and have not been represented in the past have a platform to express that there is inequality and express that um, there is prejudice and mistreatment on one side. And to me, it's the voiceless speaking back and 
a term like cancel culture gets invented, so it's a culture war, so it's a thing that can be fought. So politicians can say, I'm against cancel culture, or I'm fighting this cancel culture, rather than actually interacting with the ideas involved in it. And I think that is, at its core, the most significant part of cancel culture. There's another part, which is, there's, there's a, and I think it's such a significant minority, but there are people who believe that someone expressing an idea that they find challenging, that the expression of that idea should not be allowed, like the mere expression of it, and that those people should not be allowed to, um, to express that idea. They shouldn't have a platform to say. Yeah. The, there is another part of it, which is someone is accused of doing something in the real world that means they're perhaps not acceptable as public figures anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think they're kind of the three parts of cancel culture that I understand. The deplatforming part of it, I just think there is a complete lack of nuance within that. I actually think in a lot of ways deplatforming is fine. If someone's dangerous idea that they want to express is an idea that denies someone else's right to exist and be part of the debate, then I do believe that that person isn't in good faith trying to be part of a debate. They're actually trying to debate someone out of existence. And I would say an example of that is saying that trans people don't exist, that to have a unisex bathroom is a chance for perverted men to attack women, which has never fucking happened. You know, it's a made-up fear. And if you talk about cancel culture, the, the dialogue against trans people has been, has been cancel culture for centuries and is still cancel culture today. And the attacks on trans kids by very powerful politicians, that's the worst cancel culture I've seen. But they wouldn't see it that way. They, they would see speaking back to that as cancel culture. So I think a certain amount of deplatforming, if you deny someone's right to be part of a conversation, if you just deny someone's right to exist, then I, I think absolutely no one owes you a platform. Free speech has never been easy. I think the real difference that we have currently compared to even the political correctness debates of the 90s and everything that came before it is voiceless people have an ability to reach a broad audience that they never had before. It used to be the politicians controlled this kind of debate or the, only the people on TV or on radio, you know, that had big jobs and were already powerful were controlling that debate. Mm. And for the first time, anyone can say something and have a million people hear it, more than a million people hear mm. it. And to me, the voiceless have been given voice. They're not all right, but what people have trouble understanding is that people can speak back now. And, and I think that's what we need to come to understand. It's like a lot, of, a lot of the angriest politics is about not wanting to share the world. Mm. It's about not wanting to share the space to discuss things. It's about not wanting to share power. Mm. And if that's your position, I've got no time for you. If you want to label something cancel culture, you know, and in po- politics in particular, I'll say that anyone who hears a politician saying this, any politician saying that they, they're angry about cancel culture is basically saying, I don't want anyone holding me to account for my behaviour and I don't want to change even though the world has. That's what I hear. There is no better example of politics and religion colliding than the highest office in this land. 
So I asked Jamila whether she thinks Scott Morrison can separate his Pentecostal religion from his job. I think if there was something that fundamental to who you were, how you lived your life, I don't know how you'd separate the two. I mean, for, for me, if, if, if that religion is as fundamental for him as family, let's say, which I imagine is for it is. me, which it seems to be, right, looking at it externally, it's like saying to me, you know, could you set aside the fact that you're Ruffy's mum or Jeremy's wife to make a decision that might harm one of them that's independent of them? Well, you could completely set that aside. Of course I couldn't. This is impossible, mm. <laughs> completely impossible. Um, so I do find I do find it hard to believe, but I think I, I'm someone who's cautious about being a non-religious person and judging people who are religious because I don't experience that myself. I worry I can't understand it. Would you argue that his position on climate change is ideological? No, I think his position on climate change is political. You think it's political entirely, that it's just for the purposes of being revoted in? I think there are members of the current government for whom their climate change position is ideological. I don't think Scott Morrison is one of them. I think for him it is about political pragmatism. So explain that to me because his position on climate change hasn't been particularly useful to him, certainly in an international sense. He's been sidelined at a couple of meet and greets now internationally and it feels like the inertia of the public is going in one direction. So how is it pragmatic? I think it's pragmatic because the vast majority of the coalition's junior partner, the National Party, are firmly against progress on renewable energy, an emissions trading scheme, a price on carbon, any kind of genuine progress. And so I think as a pragmatist, Morrison is more focused on keeping the job in the first place, which requires the support of those within his party and within the National Party, beyond being a great Prime Minister or doing a good job, which requires that positive engagement with overseas parties. And for someone who's worked in Canberra, the pragmatism of Scott Morrison, is that something you saw in the people that you worked for? Gillard and Rudd and yeah, are they all like that? Well, I think you have to be pragmatic in politics. I, I think if you if you go into politics as a purist, um, you can't be in government. I think you can be a purist as a minor party member or a independent, but government requires negotiation, and negotiation requires you to give up some of your purity for any kind of progress. So I don't think pragmatism in and of itself is bad, but I think you've got to have some core tenets of belief, of ideology, of why you're there, of of a reason for being in that job that isn't just having the job, but is I would like to do some things and achieve some things that I think would be good for the country. And I think pragmatism becomes a problem when it gets in the way of the things you believe in. Would you consider yourself woke? I would consider myself as trying to be. (laughs) I don't think any of us are completely woke. I also don't think woke is a bad thing. Well, that's what I wanted to get to because it's funny when I hear the word, I I hear it in the pejorative. 
Yeah, and most of the time I think woke is used in a derogatory or pejorative sense, right? But if it's terminology to suggest you have thought about the world from different people's perspectives and you will go out of your way in behaviour and language to make people feel included rather than excluded, then I'm into that. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to be better at it. In Australia, sport is its own religion. It's genuinely tribal but also transcendent. We believe in our sports teams and we worship our sports stars. Tony Armstrong played AFL football and he feels that sport exposed him to what he really believes about himself. I played footy for three different clubs, Adelaide, Sydney and Collingwood. 35 in total? Yeah. That's not many. That's not bad, though. I reckon anything over 30 <laughs> is a career. Anything under 30 is I played AFL occasionally. So I can call it a career? You're, <laughs> you're giving me that. Yeah. You're giving me that yeah. by five games. <laughs> Got that. Um, yeah, so uh, I didn't take my chances when I got them and I was probably a player who was a bit too good for state league. Not quite good enough. What but, do you mean you didn't take your chances? So like, so like when, so when I got like an extended run of games, I never stamped myself and just was like, yeah, it's my spot now. I just never quite did that. That's all right. Was that a mental thing or a physical? probably more, probably more mental? I probably got in my own head about it a bit too much. Like I really worried about performance. Right. I used to get a lot of performance anxiety, um, because I tried really, really, really hard and. You know, of course, you want to try really hard at everything you do. But an offset of that and being a, and like not being sort of 31 like I am now and quite mature and have a bit of perspective about things, I was like, I need like, like this has to happen. And, you know, you're in my life. Yeah, this is it. This is it. Whereas now I'm finding, you know, you can work really hard at stuff. You can work really, really hard at stuff and it still might not work out. Mm. And that's a great lesson to learn because then, you know, you kind of become a little bit fearless, I think. So what when you say performance anxiety, how does that bear out when you're a footy player? Like overthinking. Um, so you're sitting in the change room going. Oh, and all the time, yeah. Doing the plays through your head and all of that kind of stuff. Do I know this? Have I done that? And then and then, you know, I'd be playing at like sandful level, for instance. Like you wouldn't even be stressed. Mm. You you'd be looking forward to doing it. Because you, because you know you're good enough, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, because you were the class player in that. Comp. Yeah, and it's and you know like the mentality just shifts a little bit, um, and then you kind of have that, I think, inbuilt confidence that that allows you to play better. And and it, and and I see it come through in every in in all walks of life now. You know, people who know that they're good enough to be somewhere have so much self belief, mm. like nothing can rattle them. And then mm. that, I think shines through their performance um even when things do go wrong they go oh well that's that was an aberration not a not a um pattern you um have quite a lot of humor about your afl career like you're even laughing about having 35 do you see it as a failure yeah personally yeah absolutely because you told me once that you hated it yeah i did i did so i've i've come around like i i really hated it by the end like hated hated footy because I was trying really hard, not getting what I wanted out of it. And I still hadn't wrapped my head around, I think, this, like the idea that I've just kind of tried to articulate in that you can, like... You can try really hard and still fail. Yeah. And it kind of goes against every single bit of sporting law that you'll ever hear, which is 
hard work, hard like like if you work hard enough, you'll get, get the results. So yeah, like of course you have to work. Like this is this is the golden thread that the that all of the great players have in whatever it is that they do. Mm. But also like a certain amount of intangible luck has gone their way as well. Mm, absolutely. And that's again not to discredit their hard work. Yeah. It's just there are other factors. There are other factors on top well, of that. I read this incredible book once called The Outliers, which um, showed the demographics of the, I think it was the Canadian under-19 ice hockey team. So the best players in the world. And all of them were born January, February, or March. Every single one of them. Because of the way that the system works there. They get split up into two different groups based on age. And one group, the older, all the older kids go into it to a funnel of coaches and stuff that's, you know, the premium and then the others going in. So admittedly, that is, I mean, that is purely luck. Like that is just yeah. a function of what month you were born. Exactly that. And there can be times people saying people aren't working hard enough or they're not trying hard enough. So no, they are. They just, A, they might not be as good. So, you know, you've got to reconcile with that as well. But then also... If you've been really good at something your whole life, you'll you'll have that confidence and self-belief that we're talking about anyway. But I think also then you get ex- exposed, like like you've just said about the outliers, you get exposed to, from a really young age, better systems, better habits, better, like all of these other things that aren't always the first thing that people think think about as as a as a factor or as a lever for anything. And that can be dance that can be that can be st- studies at school that can be anything you know so what have you learned from what you consider to be a failure what's the life lesson out of yeah your, your AFL career well for me it was that you can like like it's literally hard work doesn't equal success but you've still got to do it and, so, but it gives you a perspective now that if it doesn't happen that's okay too yeah so like I've done a lot of things especially in the last year that have I've never done before ever. But I'm kind of, I'm not afraid to try it. I'll work really hard and be as good as I can be, but I'm not afraid to try something new if I want to try to do it because I'm not afraid of failing at it. And I think that's kind of what it is as well. Like if everything was to stop for me tomorrow, I'd be fine because I've started again already. Next time on Brains Trust, we're talking fairness. We'll talk about homelessness, racism and sexism. I don't really talk about me getting sexually assaulted. That's something I don't, I have never really spoken about publicly. Me, like, being sexually assaulted and the times that I have. So it's happened more than once? Yeah, it's varying degrees. Jesus. Yeah. But I think most women have. <laughs> most women that I know have had something. Brains Trust is presented by me, Chris Walker. Produced by Chris Marsh, Carly Humby and Sam Kavanagh. See you next time as we continue the conversation with our Brains Trust. Listener.